All right. Good morning. How's everyone doing? I'm going to read the passage for today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and then I'll I'll pray for us. As Jesus went bananas, no, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table, Jesus, in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your kindness toward us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, grant us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the mind to understand Whatever wisdom you have for us today. God, I pray that as we uh, flip through these pages, read these words, they would be opportunities to see your face. God, show up and do what my words could never do. Pierce us and transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So historically, when we read passages like these in Luke chapter 5, which is uh, the version where he calls Peter, Mark chapter 2, which is the Mark version of this story, um, we read these verses as Jesus' invitation uh, to live the kingdom-inspired life of following him, to live with kindness and mercy and love and forgiveness. But oftentimes, I think we read these uh, verses, this invitation, and we think about the things that we ought to be doing, the activities and the practices that we ought to be engaging as followers of Jesus. And I think that's true. It involves uh, distinct, unique practices in following Jesus to live a kingdom-inspired life. But I think one of the things that we often miss when reading these invitations that Jesus calling his disciples Uh, is that we reduce it to the activities and the practices that we ought to be engaging in when really we should be seeing the disposition that he's inviting us to have. Not simply a matter of activity, but rather a matter of disposition and attitude. The most impactful detail of this story is easily the most forgettable one. Matthew is a tax collector. And that's a really important detail. And the reason why this is perhaps the most important detail in the story is because the relational dynamics between Matthew and literally everyone in the story is what creates the tensions and the rewards of these verses. How complicated Matthew's relationship to everyone in this story is what dictates and what motivates the tensions and the rewards that exist 
in these verses. From Jesus addressing Matthew and inviting him to follow him, to Jesus' demeanor at the very dinner party that he is hosting, to Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, all of it is motivated by how complicated Matthew is to everyone. And it's all because he's a tax collector. Let me frame this for us historically so that we have a better grasp. Israel's history includes empires like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and Persia ruling over them, oppressing them, forcing their children to marry outside of their community and exploiting them physically and financially. And currently Rome is the newest in the line of empires that is now oppressing and ruling over the Jewish community. And to make matters worse, Rome had outposts, outposts that were commanded by collectors in every town and village and region to ensure that people were paying their taxes. But to to be even more petty, Rome would hire for this role from within the very Jewish community, which meant that anyone who would take that job would essentially lose the respect of their own community because they would be working for the empire against themselves. Tax collectors were known for their dishonesty and their extortion. They collected more than they were due. They made the fine prints on the contract very small so that people would be confused and overpay. And they falsely overvalued items in order to line their pockets with more money. Now, this, is me, this isn't me speculating. This is me just reading the Bible. Because when you read Luke chapter 2 and you see Jesus baptizing a crowd of people, among that crowd were a group of tax collectors. And they came up to Jesus wanting to be baptized, wanting to do the very holy act of baptism and they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what must we do? And Jesus gives them a very holy response. He says to them, don't collect more than you are authorized to. (laughs) And it's always so fascinating to me to read Jesus's response at that moment because these tax collectors wanted to do something very holy. And very deep and very profound and very religious and very pious. They wanted to be baptized and Jesus answers their their question, what must we do? With a very practical, down to earth, you can do a right after this moment response. Stop overcharging people. Be honest in your work. You know, this idea of holiness can, also, can oftentimes be a very confusing thing. For those of us that grew up in church, maybe we've heard the word so often that it now has lost its meaning. I tell my kids often that when it comes to churchy words, <laughs> I think it's so important that we open those words up to see what's inside of them to see how they actually change the course of our lives and how we can actually put them into practice that we wouldn't just use those words without understanding fully what they mean. And so when these 
tax collectors come to do the very holy thing of baptism, Jesus invites them to not collect more than they are authorized. Now, to the Pharisees or the religious of that time, the religious leaders of the, the religious leaders of that time, to the Pharisees and to most of the Jewish community, tax collectors were considered socially unclean. They were to be socially cast out. And they were considered socially unclean because of their betrayal and their honesty and their dishonesty. It was considered by many in the Jewish community that because of their dishonesty, because of their betrayal, because of their proximity to the non-Jewish community, Gentiles, the Romans, that it served as an obstacle to their connection with God. That because they were connected to the non-Jewish community, because they worked for the empire and against their own community, that they could no longer have appropriate or proper connection with God and that the only response would be to outcast them. In other words, the Pharisees believed that their life choices kept them from living in right worship with God and their only consequence was alienation. This is the way that the religious of the time viewed the tax collectors. They thought about them. You don't associate with them. You don't associate with tax collectors. You alienate them. You don't address them and you certainly don't eat with them. Not only would it be a betrayal of the community, but far more serious, it would be a surrender of your own connection and intimacy with God if you did associate with them. And so now, with that framing, with that context, let's read verse 10. Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, and many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus was doing something incredibly radical. By eating with them. You know, for as long as I've been in church, for as long as I've been preaching, and for as long as I've studied the Bible, it seems as though that the religious leader, the Pharisees of that time were considered to be the extreme fundamentalists. They took things over the top all the time. And in some ways, they feel like the antagonist in the Bible story sometimes. That they served as an obstacle to relationship with God. And in some ways, that is true. And we'll talk about that in a second. But really, the Pharisees were the group of people that really cared about connection with God. They cared so much about it that they, that they put the laws of God at the forefront. That they took the tradition and the histories beginning from Abraham to Moses and down through the prophets. And they said these are the laws that when we obey them, when we remain close to them, we remain close to God. So it's our responsibility to ensure that we enforce these laws 
so that you can stay connected to God and so that we can be a nation and a community that stays intimate with God. And so important that we stay connected to the law. This was the religious group. This, this was the Pharisee. They cared deeply about holiness, about living a life that was uniquely distinct toward obedience to God. A life reserved for God and His glory and His beauty and His goodness and His gentleness and expressing that to the world around us. They, they actually cared deeply about that. And so the more I thought about that, the more that I realized that Jesus and the Pharisees weren't so different. Jesus also cared deeply and cares deeply about our obedience Jesus cares very much about our connection to God, about preserving our intimacy with God. Jesus cares very deeply about our holiness, our distinctiveness as the people of God. Jesus and the Pharisees weren't so different when it came to holiness. It was their approach to unholy things. That made them fundamentally different. That the way the Pharisees engaged with unholy things or unholy people or unholy practices was vastly different than the way Jesus engaged and approached unholy things, unholy people, and unholy practices. And this church makes all the difference. Do you want to know how Jesus does it? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He sits with them. He shows a kind of mutuality with them. I can't tell y'all how formative dinners were for me growing up. And particularly dinner parties. And I don't mean dinner parties, you know, like the fancy ones where you have like a thousand utensils. I mean like parties. <laughs> Dinners with family and friends. They, they were so formative for me. They meant so much to me, whether it was going to an aunt's house or a friend of the family's. It, it was never an occasion without any food. I mean, it wouldn't have been a get-together if there was no food. We didn't go to people's houses just to look at them. We didn't go to people's houses just to shoot the breeze with them. Oh, man, I need you to put a full plate of food in front of me. It wasn't a hangout. It wasn't a thing if there was no food. And with Caribbean parents, they made sure that you had a full plate of food. And I, I love the way my aunts, particularly my mom, treated food. She, it, was, it was like art for her. That she would dress the plate up and it would be all shot. I mean, Michelle Obama would be disappointed with the proportions of food that we were getting. You know what I mean? Like, she'd be with it and she'd not be with it, like, at the same time, you know? She would dress it and, and it would be an opportunity for her to show off her, her, her identity, like, man, you're going to get these beans. You're going to get this rice. 
You're going to get this, you know, cilantro. We're going to spice this up, and you're going to get all the seasoning. And you're going to come to this plate, and you're going to come to this table, and you're going to know that we Caribbean. Like, for real. It's going to be all over the experience. Eating food, being at the table, meant more than just eating. The dinner table, who you eat with, who you share food with, is a deeply vulnerable and sacred thing. Vulnerable in that you share with someone else the things that are meant to sustain you. Sacred in that when you share those things that are meant to sustain you, it bonds a deep connection with the one that you are sharing it with. The dinner table is a place of encounter and connection. You don't just share food. You share parts of yourself at that table. You share your experiences through stories. At the dinner table, others open up to you as much as you open up to them. And, and if the table means and provides this much, then what kind of harm can keeping others out of tables do to them? What kind of violence can it do to a person when you keep them out of the table? If, it, if in fact it does mean this much, if, if coming to the dinner table means that you get to be seen, if coming to the t- dinner table means that you get to share yourself, if, if coming to the table means that you get connection and intimacy, then what violence does it do, does it do to somebody when you keep them out of tables? Or when you keep them from establishing their tables. Considering all this, what Jesus does here is deeply important. In these verses, Jesus is not just sitting with Matthew and his friends. He is comfortably sitting with Matthew and his friends. The text says that he is reclining. At the table. He's not stressed. He's not worried that these are social outcasts. He's not thinking over or looking over his shoulder, thinking, what can this do to his reputation? No, the text says that Jesus is reclining at the table. This is my vibe. <laughs> this is this is where I feel comfortable. With tax collectors and so-called sinners. Jesus sits comfortably at the table and he opens himself up to Matthew and his friends. And in turn expects them and invites them, I should say, to do the same. Look, whereas the Pharisees alienated tax collectors, Jesus associates with tax collectors. Whereas the Pharisees look down on tax collectors, Jesus looks for tax collectors. Whereas the Pharisees considered tax collectors unclean, Jesus, Jesus considers them a good hang. This is Jesus. Church, it's important to realize that Jesus is doing more than just being radical, however, in these verses. How did I get this sticker on me? This is crazy. 
I just reached for my back pocket and it appeared out of nowhere. It's important to note that Jesus is not just trying to be provocative. All right? He's not just trying to be radical. Let me do something very different here. But I think that in these verses, Jesus is actually inviting us to reimagine what worship is. That he's inviting us to redefine holiness. Look at verse 11. It says, why does your teacher, this is their their question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this line of question, if you read the New Testament, becomes a pattern between Jesus and the religious leaders. And funny enough, oftentimes they ask that question to the disciples, not Jesus. It's kind of like, yo, he's right there. You can ask him, right? But they don't. They ask the disciples. And I, I think there's some intentionality behind that. This line of questioning becomes the pattern, and they, and they ask them, because I think that the religious, leaders, the religious leaders know that if they could attack Jesus' honor, they could discredit his worship. That if they can get the crowds, including his disciples, to see that Jesus doesn't quite understand the way holiness works, because holy people don't associate with unholy people. So you see, Jesus doesn't quite get it. If they can get the crowds and his disciples to see that Jesus doesn't quite get what holiness is and how holiness works, then they can probably dismantle his whole movement. They can discredit his experiences of worship. In other words, they knew that asking this question would paint Jesus as someone who is not aligned with God. That they can... Uh, uh, picture him to be a person as someone who doesn't get what it means to obey and worship God the right way, the way that they have deemed right. But listen to how Jesus responds. Verse 12, he says, now, when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn uh, what this means. And this is, I think, our key. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, but not and not sacrifice. Now, I've got to make a distinction here because when Jesus says sacrifice here, it's important to realize that he's not referring to the kind of sacrifice where you give something up that's really important to, uh, to you but for the sake of something else, right? It's not, this is not sacrifice like I gave up my free day to go help my buddy move. This is not that kind of sacrifice that he's referring to here. He is referring to the sacrifice of animals, The offering that Israel used to bring because that was the way that Israel used to communicate and demonstrate their commitment to God and their remorse for the ways that they hurt God in relationship through their sin. If I sinned and if I hurt my connection and intimacy to God and if I I have remorse, I show that by bringing an offering to the worship place. I bring an offering, I bring an animal to be sacrificed on my behalf in order to satisfy what is broken between uh, uh, myself and God. So when he says sacrifice here, he means that kind of sacrifice. 
Sacrificing animals was their way of connecting to God when connection was broken. So when he says here, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, what he's saying is here, no, 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 look. You, 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 show, you don't show your love and commitment to me by slaughtering an animal. You show your commitment and love to me by reenacting the love and mercy that I have shown you to the world around you. Now, you don't have to slaughter an animal. You don't have to bring a, bring a gift to the altar. Instead, if you want to repair, if you want to repair what is broken between us, if you want to show your commitment to this divine relationship, I need you to take the love and mercy that I have shown you and reenact it to the world around you. Jesus sits at this table with tax collectors and sinners knowing that just in, a, in just a few weeks, he will be sacrificing himself once and for all. And rather than offering them the alienation that their sin deserves, what does he give them? He gives them mercy and his company. Jesus understood that he would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So he says, no, 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 no. I could sit with you and not be angry with you. I could sit with you and enjoy company with you because I believe that it is my mercy and my company that will actually transform your life. By simply sitting at the dinner table with Matthew and his friends, Jesus subverts the idea that worship is about prioritizing law over people. He says, no, connection is important, intimacy is important, mercy is important. And rather than these religious leaders, by their line of questioning, rather than these religious leaders discrediting Jesus with this question, Jesus establishes that mercy and connection is the new worship. Mercy and connection is the new worship. And, and look. This is so deeply important to Jesus, and it ought to be so deeply important to us, but it is so deeply important to Jesus that in chapter 5, just a few chapters before this, he tells us that he cares less about what we bring to the altar, and he cares more about the connection that we have with one another. I'll read it for you. So if you are offering, this is Jesus talking at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if you are offering a gift on the altar and there, as you're bringing the gift, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. In other words, something is broken between you. Leave the gift. Leave the gift there in front of the altar first Go and be reconciled. In other words, repair the connection with your brother and sister and then come offer the gift. Jesus is like, I don't want nothing to do with your gift if you have broken relationship in your life. 
I want nothing to do with it. Leave it at the altar and go show your mercy and go work toward repairing the intimacy that is broken. That is true of our horizontal relationship as much as our vertical relationship. I'm way over time, but I'm almost done. How do we synthesize some of this stuff? I want to give you all some tidbits so they I can take with you. The first thing is that Jesus represents the approach to sin that's creative, gentle, and kind. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, required clear evidence of remorse in order to justify even pursuing sinners. I got to see you actually feeling really sorry about your lifestyle and showing evidence of it, I got to really see it in order for me to even consider being in your company. Otherwise, the only way to respond to you is alienation, separation, ostracizing you. But Jesus did it very differently, didn't he? Jesus inspires remorse With his pursuit, not his distance. Jesus inspires remorse with his pursuit, not his distance. We ought to do the same. One approach produces a self-indulgent shame that, that can only see how they've been deeply pushed out. The other produces a humility that only sees the genuine pursuit that brings them in. One is overwhelmed by their sin. The other is overwhelmed by Jesus' kindness. And it is that kindness, that gentleness that Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us will lead people to repentance. There was nothing particularly remarkable about Matthew and his friends There was nothing that they did to earn a spot at the party with Jesus. And I think that's the point. You may be here thinking, I've got to do this, or I've got to engage that, or I've got to piece myself together. And what these verses show us is that you don't earn your place at this party. We don't have to be worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. You just have to be moved by his invitation. And then lastly, Jesus made no distinction between persons. I love this. (laughs) Because whether we like it or not, Jesus not making a distinction between persons at his time and certainly in our time is a deeply political decision on his part. It's incredible to see what a dinner party can do to a harmful, corrupt religious system. A religious system that ostracized certain people. You see, by hosting a a dinner party, Jesus rejects a system that classifies people into these anti-kingdom categories that keep some people in and other people out. That considers some worthy and others unworthy. And yet instead, what we see Jesus do and what we see all throughout the New Testament is that Jesus sits down and he makes a table anywhere and with whoever is willing to eat with him. In the New Testament, you see Jesus sitting down and eating at a beach on a desert 
in a field on both sides of the lake, which is just another way of saying on both sides of the track, with tax collectors, with a leper in an upper room. Jesus eats anywhere. He was Caribbean. I, I, I promise you, right? Jesus eats anywhere. And the invitation for that table is not exclusive, but to anyone who is willing to eat with him. Jesus was not a distincter of person. He didn't classify, classify people into categories. And Paul says something f- similar in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if, any, if anyone else thinks that he has grounds for confidence in their own flesh, I have more, Paul says. He says, I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. But everything that I was, uh, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss, which is a very polished way of saying what he actually said in the original language. I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Jesus was not making distinction between person. This is why Paul himself confronted Peter, the rock on which Jesus built the church. He confronted Peter because of Peter because of Peter's hypocrisy uh, uh, at a at a dinner table. Galatians chapter two verse eleven says this. But uh, but when but when Peter came to Antioch. I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with Gentiles, non-Jews, before certain men from the Jewish community came. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the Jewish community. Then the rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy. So that even Barnabas, Paul's really good friend, was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see what happens when you... It's so interesting to me. I didn't catch this the first time around. But it's so interesting to me, the, the harm that excluding people from the table does. Barnabas, a leader in the New Testament church, was led astray because of a hypocrisy that led him to be excluded from the table with Peter. Man, I get to have lunch with Peter. Wrong. But when I saw that they were deviating, Paul continues, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, boy, put him on blast, in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is why, of course, when the kingdom of God is fully established, it will be like a banquet, a table with Jesus and all those who said yes to the invitation. Church, where are we setting tables? Where are you setting tables? Who are you keeping out? Who are you inviting in? And what do those tables say about you? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. 
Thank you for the patience of Emmanuel letting me go over 20 minutes. I'm grateful for that. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you can do what, again, I never could. Pierce us. Show us your wisdom in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.